Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Recently, I received a communication from a woman named Katie Tolarski. She told me a story about the office refrigerator where she works, which is where I work. She said somebody's lunch had been sitting in the refrigerator getting stinky. Because of that, the night cleaning crew threw out everybody's food, including some perfectly good lasagna I had in a nice Pyrex thing. Katie called me on her cell phone from a parking lot outside of Taco Bell. Here's Katie. Okay, I, I couldn't understand that, but I was pretty sure that she said Greg Hill. Was Greg the guy with the stinky lunch? I had to know. Episode one. What kind of guy leaves his lunch sitting around for- Okay, stop. Excuse me? You can't turn everything into a serial investigation. You've gotten way too into that show. First of all, it wasn't my stinky lunch. We're friends. You should just accept on faith that I didn't do it. I resent being turned into a person of interest. Could I believe Greg? I really wanted to. I did. And what I heard over and over from Greg's friends was that, you know, the Greg that they knew, a fastidious, considerate man, couldn't be the stinky lunch guy. But there was one person who had a different version. A story about Greg that was so evil and disgusting that if it were true, I I might as well just pack up and... Are you doing cereal again? What? No, it's... I'm just tuning my crappy piano. That better be all it is. See, did it sound like he was threatening me? This is... I, I, I just don't know. I mean, right? It's not me, is it? Next week, more about Greg, a possible weirdo. Meanwhile, today on the show, we focus on the podcast that fascinated so many people. And now he'll talk to you about cereal for 99 cents a minute. Colin McEnroe. All right, that's all coming up at the end of today's show. We will be talking about the second season of Serial. We actually wrote and recorded that during the first season of Serial, but it was too fun. I'd forgotten how funny the toy piano is in that, so it was too fun not to use it again. Uh, We have all kinds of other exciting things. We have a grab bag, a cornucopia of exciting, a potpourri, a plethora even. We have a plethora of exciting things uh, to bring your way uh, as we get through today's show. A little bit later in the show, there's actually a lawsuit against one of New York's premier museums by someone who is discomfited by um, how white Jesus is in some of the depictions of Je- classical depictions of Jesus. Anyway, we'll tell you uh, uh, more about that. But first, we're going to go, metaphorically speaking, to the world of Texas. Uh, and it is a world unto itself. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick is with us. The Supreme Court is considering two cases, uh, each of which in and of itself and certainly joined together are prominent reminders that the next time Texas talks about seceding, we should sincerely think about letting them do it. Um, uh, Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate. And by the way, at the end of all this, if you feel as though you don't understand what's been said, you need to go listen to her amicus podcast. It's uh, the best podcast on the Supreme Court that there could possibly be. And both of these cases are dealt with in greater detail than we will be able to hear. So uh, more Dahlia all the time at at amicus. Hi, Dahlia. (laughs) 
So we're going to begin uh, with Fisher uh, versus the University of Texas. This is the one, where, and we'll come to it, in which um, Justice Scalia, because Supreme Court justices don't even have to say things in a nice way, uh, described what is commonly known as mismatch theory in the most ham-fisted and blunt terms possible. But first, we have to set the stage here. So this is a case uh, about admissions policies and specifically about the University of Texas's specific admissions policy, um, and which in which 75 percent of the people who apply, uh, who, who, who are admitted to the University of Texas, are admitted simply because they scored in the top 10 percent of their classes. And then there's this 25 percent discretionary group. And I'll let you take over the narrative from there. Right. I mean, the, the, the first 75 percent, the top scores in, in the Texas high schools are just reflexively admitted to Texas, and that's completely race-blind admission. And it's important probably to just point out that because Texas is still so very, very segregated in terms of neighborhoods and therefore schools, that policy really does have the effect of pushing a lot of minority students who go to all minority schools uh, into the UT system. But you're quite right. The fight in this particular challenge, and this is called Fisher II, it's the second time this case has come to the court, and the fight here is about the other 25% approximately of student admits who come in through this thing that's called a sort of holistic system, and that is basically a form of affirmative action that was blessed by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in 2003 when they looked at, you'll remember, the Michigan, the University mm -hmm. of Michigan Law School. And basically the court said at the time, you can't have a rigid quota, you can't have a numeric point system, but if in trying to foster the school's interest in having a diverse student body, you want to take race into account along with other, you know, disadvantaging conditions or school leadership positions, you can look at the other admits using race as a factor, and this case comes to the court because Abigail Fisher, a white woman who felt that she should have made it in that second uh, selection process, said that she didn't get into Texas because minorities were given preference over her, therefore her constitutional rights are violated. Right, and it should be noted that the University of Texas says, well, actually, she wouldn't have gotten in anyway, but... Um uh, but that's what they say. So this is what I refer to as the cowbell method of affirmative action. So this last 25 percent passes through the equivalent of like an audio mixing board in which various elements are turned up or down. So one of these could be race. That's the cowbell. Uh, but there are also violins, which could be the student essay and guitars, which could be leadership qualities and saxophones, which could actually be whether or not you're a really good saxophone player. Um, and it seems to me, Dahlia, that four members of the Roberts court are leaning in the direction of saying Anytime you add cowbell, no matter how subtle the mix, uh, no matter how nuanced the blend, you're violating the Equal Protection Clause because you went there. You went to cowbell. Okay. Uh, first of all, you should just totally write the majority opinion in this case <laughs> with the violins and the cowbells. I'm talking to Kennedy about this right now. It's yeah. sublime. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I think that the argument is, and this is, you know, at least um, – four members of uh, the Roberts Court really feel strongly that when we are promised a, quote, race-blind constitution, a constitution that does not take race into account, then it is just as discriminatory to put on the thumb on the scale because you're black as it would be to put a thumb on the scale if you're white. That either way you slice it, the constitution is violated when the government is looking at race when they hand out benefits. 
So it seems as though this is going to be another Justice Kennedy kind of case. And that it seems also as though it could be like, I mean, presume, uh, possibly because we're really kind of down to this much more subtle verma- version of affirmative action that Justice Kennedy could say, OK, that's it. No more affirmative action. You can't even do this. So there's nothing left. So stop it. No more. It's all over. Or he could write an opinion that's very specific somehow to the case of Texas and leave a little more wiggle room for other kinds of formula formulas. That's right. And that's where it's really important to notice that this case was already up at the Supreme Court in 2013. If Justice and it's also probably very important to say that Elena Kagan is recused in this case. Mm -hmm. So we have the very real possibility of a 4-4 split, no matter what happens, and that's all kinds of complicated. But when this case came up to the court two years ago, and everybody said, here it is, this is Justice Kennedy saying, I just can't live with affirmative action anymore. I'm going to pull the plug on the whole system. And as you'll recall, the court didn't do that. The court voted instead 7-1 to to kick this case back to the Uh, federal appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, based in Texas, and said, hey, we want you to look at this again, use a much stricter standard of review, right? Use strict scrutiny, which basically means heavily, heavily presume that this is going to be problematic. And the Fifth Circuit surprised everyone and said, yeah, we're, we're good. We, we still think it's all right. And so the court, not only does Anthony Kennedy have to sort of make a decision about how fine he can dice the salami here, but really he's done his very best to make someone else the guy who pulls the trigger on ending affirmative action. And he, it didn't work. So now he's got it again. And that's really awkward for him because, you know, unlike some of the other conservative justices, he doesn't believe in this race-blind principle. He's open to the possibility that there is a lingering effect of prejudice and discrimination. He just last spring voted in an important housing discrimination case that there's such thing as as even unintentional discrimination and subconscious discrimination. So he understands that race is still an issue in America, but he really hates affirmative action. And so this puts him really on a knife point in terms of he doesn't want to be the guy who ends this. He gets the problem, but he really, really thinks there have to be race-neutral ways to do this. So uh, you talked about awkward. Well, there's awkward, and then there's capital A, awkward. So in the midst of all this, as if this were not a squirmy enough case, suddenly uh, Justice Scalia brought up um, a theory that's been around for a long time. It's called mismatch theory. It's uh, the work of uh, uh, a particular one scholar at UCLA. Other people have kind of uh, picked up the cudgel now and then. Uh, Here's how Justice Scalia put it. There are those who contend that it does not benefit African Americans to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, as opposed to having slower track schools where they do well. Uh, One of the briefs pointed out that most of the black scientists in the country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. They come from lesser schools where they do not fear, uh, feel that they are being pushed ahead in classes that are too fast for them. P.S. I have one of those black jockeys in front of my house. Um, I mean, whenever he talks about this stuff, he just it just he's so (laughs) I mean, he really does sound like the guy in your neighborhood who won't get rid of the jockey that's out on the lawn. I mean, he just he doesn't really back off. And, and this, Dahlia, is an argument that when people the people who really push it when they frame it, they try to make it sound a lot more subtle than what came out of his mouth. That's exactly right. It's funny. I, I listened that morning. I mean, I was in the courtroom when Scalia was talking and what I thought was, huh. When Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute made this point on NPR this morning, it was really gently and sensitively framed. You know, mm-hmm. it can be done. Uh, and then Justice Scalia, it's like he goes through his thesaurus and tries to find the most objectionable possible 
framing of each of these ideas. And, you know, he was very careful. I mean, Justice Alito was very careful to call uh, to talk about African-Americans. Scalia just called them blacks. You know, this mm-hmm. notion of lesser schools, this notion of, you know, they, they don't do well. They need to go to lesser schools and slower schools. I mean, it's as though every word is chosen to inflame. And no one outside of AM radio talks that way, certainly not on the bench. So it was, you know, as widely reported, people did gasp. It was an amazing choice to use that language. You know, one thing that has been raised, okay, so this is, I mean, they brought it up in the most terrible way possible, and I didn't even read the whole quote. It goes on and on, and there's more, more blacks and more lesser schools and all, all this stuff. Um, I mean, one argument that comes up is, all right, well, this this is not something that he just thought up yesterday. As I said, this has been around for a while. Uh, there are people who, who do try to frame it a little bit differently. And then there's been a ton of social science research on it, most of which seems to really kind of knock it down, particularly at the level of subtlety, the level of cowbell subtlety that we were talking about before. The way, in fact, which, I mean, back in the 70s, maybe there were just these really kind of blunt quotas, and you could maybe make the argument back then that, that somebody was grabbed out of one context and thrust into another and, and maybe didn't do that well. But given the kind of subtle mix that we're talking about these days, it really doesn't seem to hold up as a matter of social science, uh, and it certainly doesn't reflect the way things are done. Uh, and on the other hand, there's an argument for saying, well, so bring it up and then knock it down. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, and I think that's where Scalia got an unfair rap. I mean, I think the initial tweets and and, um, posts about this were unfair, first of all, because a lot of them declined to mention that he was citing an amicus brief. You know, this wasn't Scalia just citing his opinion. And I think the justices need to be able to freely cite amicus briefs, even when they say things that some people find abhorrent. And so there is this sort of slight you know, tendency to to rush in and judge and arrive at the worst possible conclusions. And as you say, there are other amicus briefs filed in the same case that roundly debunk the mismatch theory. And so, you know, it's fair game to talk about it. I would say, and this is something that I think not everybody noticed, that he was talking about how minority students don't thrive at good schools, and yet... Uh, he was sitting a foot away from Clarence Thomas and just several more feet away from Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, and so there's another level of the sort of the pure optics of suggesting uh, that, you know, man, they are out of their league, uh, that, you know, you couldn't have failed to miss if you were watching. So there's, again, it's not that he shouldn't be allowed to say whatever he needs to say. And as you say, this is a theory that goes way back. But I think that there's just something about the way he says it and the way in which uh, it really feels as though he's saying, like my friends here, Sonia and Clarence, who barely scrape by at their respective uh, Ivy League schools. It's just a very, very sort of uh, tone-deaf way of talking about something that is already being caricatured and really uh, inflamed throughout the country. I would also just like to say, based on my experience uh, at one fairly elite institution, that there are people who are admitted, who are not qualified, and who barely scrape by. They are called legacies. Uh, they are, you know, their parents went there or something. <laughs> and, and, and I would just double down on that and say, you know, it's amazing that nobody thought that Abigail Fisher, who, as you said, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said she wasn't going to get in anyway. Mm. And yet nobody says, hey, she would have felt really awful if she'd gone to UT and wasn't as smart as everyone else. And so I do think it points up the sort of extent to which we assume that white people who don't uh, get admitted are going to do just great <laughs> at schools that are that are too hard for them because they're somehow entitled to be there in the first place. So, um, you know, as you've noted, it isn't really only uh, Justice Scalia who's winding up sort of in these kind of tripwire 
red zone kind of mode. It's Justice Sotomayor as well. This is a it's a hard topic to talk about for all the reasons that we're suggesting. And and she's uh, had some flare ups as well. That's right. And it's probably the other one tiny data point we should put in to flesh out the conversation is that if you really care about inside baseball at the Supreme Court, then you may be interested to know that Joan Biskupic, who uh, reports on the court for Reuters, did some extraordinary reporting last year and found out one of the big reasons the court kicked this case back in 2013. They sat on it for eight months, Fisher won, and sent it back to the lower court, was in part because Sotomayor had circulated a draft opinion that was about really the impact of race in America today, more or less saying, oh, my God, every time you say we're over race and we're getting over race, and to quote the Chief Justice, the best way to get beyond race is to get beyond race, you are diminishing the experience of every day of what it is to be a minority in this country. And it was an incredibly passionate dissent. There was reporting by Joan Biskupic suggesting that because of that dissent, the court just said, oh, my God, make this go away, and they agreed to not decide the case, and the dissent was not published, although the dissent was published uh, a year later in a Michigan affirmative action case called Shooty. So I think it's really, really important in talking about how Sotomayor fits into this that she – it took her a while, but she has become – a real voice on the Supreme Court for the experience of being a minority and the experience of being told, you don't belong here. And so when she is talking in this case, and there were a lot of points when she was trying to talk and people were talking over her, uh, it's really important to see the sort of valence around her life and her story and how much she feels not only that she herself benefited from uh, affirmative action, but that the absolute blindness of some of her colleagues on this issue is really painful to her. All right. Uh, for more about this uh, and other things, uh, you should absolutely investigate Dahlia's podcast, a- Amicus, which covers this in greater detail than, than we can today. But we want to have a little bit of time to move on to Evan Wall. This is the other case. Oh, it's so different. It's not about Texas. Yes, it is. It's not by a whole different group of people. No, it's not. It's the same people all over again, the same basically kind of conservative uh, legal think tank project. It's the same uh, uh, lawyer, uh, Mr. Blum. <laughs> it's like all the same people all over again. But about a completely different thing, which is about how, in fact, districts uh, on a state-by-state basis, how districts are apportioned. Um, We know that at the federal level, at the U.S. level, it's one person, one vote. Uh, But uh, Texas or some people in Texas are making the argument, well, there might be another way to look at this. Uh, What's that other way, Dahlia? It's really such an intriguing case, and it a little bit flew under the radar. But as you say, I think it's a really uh, sort of important new wave in the voting wars. And uh, in effect, the argument here is that when states apportion legislative districts and they use the census, they use the pure population to count the size of districts and to try to create one person, one vote so that they have relatively equally apportioned uh, legislative districts, they are massively overcounting non-voters, right, because there are cities, they tend to be cities, that are full of people who don't vote. And those may be disenfranchised felons, and those may be uh, uh, legal resident aliens, or illegal resident aliens, or children. And so this is really a very, very clever uh, move that says, if you apportion seats based on... on um, purely census on population numbers as opposed to voters, you are diluting the vote 
of the voters in jurisdictions where huge numbers of people are not legal citizens and so or legal voters and it is an amazingly deft way and i think everybody agrees to this to shift uh, power away from big urban areas areas that have huge numbers of children areas as it, uh, it occurs in texas where there are a lot of um, non-citizens in a jurisdiction and to shift it back to older whiter rural areas. And so this is really an amazing reversal of the very principle, uh, one person, one vote, that says when we apportion districts, we count noses, we don't count voters. They're saying, no, 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 count voters. Right. Your uh, former colleague and former boss, uh, David Platts, made a great point, which is this is sort of extra judicial, but it's, you know, the notion that, that, you know, that rural districts are over influenced by cities is kind of sounds like the tail wagging the dog or the reality is that the, the you know the, the cities are over influenced probably just in terms of you know in places like Texas and New York state you know the cities are way over influenced by you know rural places like upstate New York in terms of uh, what what would make sense but anyway that's not for the court to decide although i think one fair question to ask is i mean the census has a kind of canonical weight to it uh, at at a methodological level everybody understands how the census is arrived at, whereas I'm not sure there's a, I know, in fact, that there's not a voter list equivalent, that if you were to ask five people in Connecticut how many voters there are in Bridgeport, Connecticut, you might get five different answers. Uh, I mean, there just isn't something that has the settled weight uh, of uh, of the census when you try to count voters. Not only the settled weight, but as Elena Kagan pointed out at argument, the constitutional weight, right? The, the census is required, and so it really does have uh, some kind of force uh, and should have some kind of force. But, but I think that your basic point is there is no instrument by which we count voters in America. The census doesn't ask if you're a voter. We don't have another instrument. We have representational models that political scientists use for other purposes. But even the former uh, 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 heads of all sorts of entities who, who um, count census votes say there isn't an instrument here to do this. And so really what the plaintiffs in this case are doing is they're coming to court and saying, we have a problem, and we don't really have a solution, but we think that you should agree and constitutionalize the problem and leave it to us to sort out how we're going to count voters. And that's a really kind of horrifying proposition when you think about the fact that this has the possibility of really fundamentally upending the way we apportion jurisdictions uh, all around the country. So it's, it's, it's really, really a deeply profound flaw in this case that there isn't a way to know. There's simply, it does not exist, a way to know the information they're seeking to base all of apportionment on. I, I assume that, I mean, there may be many shades of gray here, but um, I, I assume that there are three basic possible rulings here. One of them is the court can say, no, it's population. Go away. Shut up. Don't ask us about this anymore. It's population. Even at the state level, it's population. That's that. Or they could say, you know what? You're really right. We never thought about this before, but, you know, it really makes more sense just to count the voters. So everybody do that. Or they could say, well, the states get to choose. Um, now, that one, as you're suggesting, really seems like it would create chaos in which the right of suffrage would be defined state by state in, in a manner advantageous to the majority, or at least the, not the right of suffrage, but sort of the nature and, and, and impact of suffrage would be defined state by state. And whatever the majority is, they try to do it their way. In other words, if you're, you know, I mean, it just to be kind of 
black and white about the whole thing. If you're a Democratic majority, you probably you know want to go with the population model, and if you're a Republican majority, you probably want to go with the voter model. And and so these really basic questions of governance governance would become purely political questions. That's exactly right. I think that the other possibility uh, that was floated as a kind of hybrid uh, of of your you know sort of model three is that. Uh, and this looked as though uh, both Chief Justice John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy might uh, be pushing for this as a solution, was to have a kind of hybrid situation where you default to counting uh, persons, to counting uh, simply who resides in a jurisdiction. But when there's a deviation that is really extreme, when it's very, very clear, as it is in some of these uh, examples in Texas that your vote has been diluted by just too large a proportion, then you sort of flip over to the uh, one voter, one vote model. And how that gets executed, <laughs> we don't begin to understand. Right. But that was another possibility that was floated that will kind of default to the status quo, but certainly uh, how we're going to figure this out, I don't know. But in some jurisdictions, we could have this in cases of egregious malapportionment. Right. So, I mean, just uh, we have to wrap this up, but obviously just uh, we sh- should have said this at the beginning. So in Texas, there are uh, these districts that have uh, 500,000 voters. And then there's the di- district that has uh, Brownsville that has 375,000 voters, but has a big population. It's a border area. There's obviously there. Therefore, there are, uh, you know, people from people who are immigrants, people or who knows all the people that you talked about. Um, so suddenly they have 375,000 voters, but they get the same representative as the places that have 500,000. But it seems to me, if you went to that trigger system, like, you know, if, if it was this disparity, it would, it would make life really interesting. I mean, in Brownsville, you would just try to register as many people as you possibly could if you were the Democratic Party. Everybody better register right now so we have enough voters so we don't hit the trigger. <laughs> and it's, and it's, I, I spoke to uh, Nate Persilli, who um, does this, you know, draws these uh, legislative maps for, for his job at, at Stanford Law School on the podcast this week. And he said this is a moment where he just wants to sit Justice Kennedy right down beside him and be like, sit next to me right here, and I'm going to show you how it would look like if we drew maps that way. And another one of those moments where you say, God bless the Supreme Court, but it would be awfully nice if anybody there had ever had a job in politics. All right. Well, listen, uh, thank God there's somebody who has your job and that it's you, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, host of the Amicus podcast and Supreme Court writer uh, for Slate magazine. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with a different kind of lawsuit, this one involving fine art. We're the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Supreme Court judges. All right, we're back. We're about to talk about another lawsuit, uh, but it's uh, a very different kind of lawsuit. It may be actually be, we'll find out, I guess, a frivolous lawsuit, but it's really interesting anyway, some of the conversations that will come out of it. Uh, joining us right now is Guelda Voyen, the senior editor at the New York Observer, covering the arts and museums. Uh, Guelda, I'm going to have you just uh, set this up for us. Somebody is suing the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Why would that be? Uh, so... Uh Justin Rennell Joseph has filed suit against the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he claims that the depictions of Jesus in some classical paintings caused him personal stress because Jesus, as a Semitic uh, historical figure, should have appeared with dark hair and dark skin. And um, in the suit, Mr. Joseph says that as a person with dark hair and skin, 
um, he, he became very distressed by, the, he felt excluded from society by these depictions of Jesus uh, as, as a Caucasian blonde in these classical, classical paintings. Now, whether any court would actually hear this uh, is a separate question, but it's a, you know at least raises some interesting questions, which might be kind of uh, fun to unpack. So um, m- maybe the first one is, I mean, in some ways this seems like another round in the current battle we're having over people's right to either be not offended, to be not confronted with material that in some way estranges them or causes them stress for that reason. Although I, I would assume that it's a little bit, I mean, how you feel and how you feel you're treated on a college campus where you're a tuition paying student might be a little bit different from how you feel looking at paintings in a museum. But there's there's some way in which they're part of a similar continuum. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing this all over the country. I think recently there was a controversy about about paintings that were hung in a, a state house in Montana, um, and they showed basically uh, American Indians, uh, Native Americans, um, and and sort of used some of the tropes that we associate um, with early depictions of Thanksgiving or something, you know, with feathers and. Native American groups have come forward and pointed out that actually they're not they're not historically accurate these paintings and now there's a there's a debate going on there about whether or not they should be displayed. They're they're also some of the only paintings that that depict that era. So of course there are people who think that they should remain on display. Um, I mean I think that this lawsuit is far more is is definitely frivolous and as you said will probably not be heard. Um, but it, but it's rooted in in some semblance of reason in that it claims that a public institution, after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, you know, cannot cannot discriminate. So I think that I think that the discussion now might have spurred this person to um, make this somewhat ridiculous claim. But but the, and it's unfortunate. I think that anyone would kind of clog up our legal system. But but it does relate very much to sort of the the question right now, you know, to, should we revise parts of history that were unfortunate kind of out of our consciousness because it makes us uncomfortable or causes us, as he said, you know, emotional stress. Right. But it's also sort of question, there's some profound questions about art, too. I mean, art uh, exists in a different way from history. Um, exactly. I mean, and, and history is subjective as well. Art is even more subjective, probably. Right. As I was uh, making notes back and forth with Betsy Kaplan today, I was sort of saying, well, you know, there's Benjamin West painting of uh, General James Wolfe dying in the Battle of Quebec. Well, I'm sure that's not exactly how it happened. And uh, in right. fact, ironically, West actually makes him look kind of Christ-like uh, in this pose. And the history that he was relying on, although he pretty much was a contemporary, but I mean, he's relying on accounts that are necessarily biased. His vision of this is biased. So if you want to learn about history, you know, you're going to get a metaphorical truth out of that uh, rather than another one, uh, rather than a a hard historical truth, assuming there even is any such thing. Um, But to me, this also is, I mean, the flip side of this is, you know, a few years ago we had Rudy Giuliani freaking out uh, yeah. because the Brooklyn Art Museum had this Chris Ophelia, highly Africanized version of the, of the Virgin Mary that was uh, with elephant dung being one of the artistic components of it. So, you know, in some ways you get you get a similar argument. It's not maybe couched legally quite the way this one is, but it's like, this is freaking me out. This is stressing me out. This is upsetting to me. It's upsetting to a whole bunch of other people, so it shouldn't be up in a museum. 
Absolutely. And it seems like we go through this every time the culture wars escalate. Uh, we did it with Andres Serrano, uh, Piss Christ. We did it, like you said, with the Giuliani situation at the cloisters. Um, it, it just seems like how many times are we going to have to decide that actually what art should do to some degree is make you uncomfortable? And if it if it hasn't, if some art hasn't, then I, you are a unique individual. Right. And I mean, the other thing about this is, I mean, once again, as a continuum, I mean, art has always done this, right? This is one of the roles that art plays. And and oddly enough, if you go back to sort of the time of Charlemagne, there were Christian theorists at that time saying that the, the kinds of paintings that we're talking about right now, and I don't know if we said it, but it's the paintings are painters are like Granacci and Tintoretto and Perugino. Exactly. So they come a little bit later in history than, than Charlemagne. But at that time, they were saying, no, no, don't paint any of this stuff. Exactly. Because it doesn't, because you don't know. You don't know what Jesus and Mary looked like. And, you know, these people may be more influenced by Greco-Roman depictions of, you know, Alchemini and, and with Hercules on her lap. And then they make that into Mary with Jesus on her lap. That, that there's something wrong with that. I mean, that, that was an argument at one time, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there, the church was very adamant that depictions of, of the Virgin Mary and Jesus not exist until a certain point. And I think that all, in general, depictions of God have been an incredibly sensitive subject throughout history. Um, but does that mean that seeing historical paintings has any any bearing on your religion or you as a person or your personal identity? I mean, is it not just being educated? You, well, you, we know what's going to happen, right? Trigger warnings. You walk into the museum, there'll be a little sign that says, <laughs> you may see things here, depending on your orientation, that may upset you, so just get ready, right? Maybe that's maybe they'll, they'll actually come to that. I, I really hope not. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to see the precious real estate in the Metropolitan Museum taken up by placards that, that warn you that, you know, all of Western history is possibly a, a function of racism. If you can't figure it out yourself, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, thanks very much for uh, spending some time with us, Guelda Voyen, senior editor at the New York Observer. I'm sure we'll revisit this subject uh, in the future. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our final topic, and that's the one that's about cereal. She's back, and she's with Bo Bergdahl, and the venue is Afghanistan this time. Can you use MailChimp to deliver high fives to Bo Bergdahl? I'm so confused. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the intro. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Zachary LaSala. The part of Bill Curry was played by Pete Rose. For articles, show pages, and audio of the Here and Now staff calling the Taliban, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, our salute to Bill Murray. And now, back to Colin. Yes, tomorrow's show does not feature Bill Murray, however, uh, but we will feature a lot of people talking about Bill Murray. It's going to be a fun show, actually. So this is a fun show, too, or at least a, an interesting show. Some of it has been uh, rather serious. but um, and, and serial is kind of both. It's uh, something that we uh, take very seriously. It often is, deals with a very serious subject matter. People have a lot of fun with it, too. Um, 
last week uh, the first episode dropped, and at the end there was, in fact, a promo going, looking forward at, at the next installment. And at one point we hear Sarah Koenig saying, uh, this is me calling the ta- Taliban. That's already turned, in, turned into like this huge Internet meme of you know, people lying on beds with their princess phones calling the Taliban. Uh, anyway, joining us now is Gabriel Roth. He's a senior editor uh, at Slate Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, um, obviously, this is a long-awaited um, second installment uh, for Serial. Um, it's different in a lot of ways, uh, and, and I think we don't know yet how similar it's going to be to some of the things that made the first Serial such lightning in a bottle. But um, in what ways does it strike you as steering a slightly different course? Well, the the big hook of season one of Serial was that there was this very straightforward binary question. Did, did Adnan Saeed kill Heyman Lee? That, that was, uh, you know, the court had found him guilty and, and he was imprisoned. And he uh, the, the show suggested that he might have been wrongfully convicted. Uh, and, and the whole purpose of the investigation of Serial was to come to an answer to that question. They, they were not able to come to a, a firm answer to that question. But that was what kept people tuning in, and that was the question that organized all of the, both the content of the show and the discussion around the show. And this second season, which is about Bo Bergdahl, who walked off a U.S. Army base in Afghanistan in 2009, uh, it, it doesn't have such a clear yes or no question. Uh, it wants to find out why Bergdahl did what he did. It, it, it seems to want to discuss and to investigate the consequences of his decision to do that. Uh, but it doesn't boil down so neatly to a yes or no question. I, I think another aspect of this that will be interesting to see whether they can recreate here, one of the things that made the first season so mesmerizing was that kind of show-your-work quality uh, to an extent that journalism typically doesn't do. We sort of saw Sarah Koenig at least kind of telling us her version of how she was assembling this story, things she found confusing, things she found personally troubling, ways in which her own personal relationship to this story was either was or was not affecting it. And there was also this sense that she had, had come upon this in a, in a clearing and a dense forest that not many people had visited. This time, this thing starts with a pretty well, well-known screenwriter already having tackled this. Uh, the guy who's been involved in, in Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, this guy has already forged the kind of relationship with Bo Bergdahl that Sarah Koenig created pretty much out of thin air uh, in the first serial. Yeah, that's exactly right. It seems as though season two of Serial came into being when the filmmaker and journalist Mark Bull approached Sarah Koenig and Julie Snyder, the producer at Serial, uh, and said, look, I've got this tape of me having these conversations with Bo Bergdahl. No one has heard from Bergdahl yet. He's been at the center of this firestorm. He did this remarkable thing, and then this even more remarkable thing erupted around him. But no one has heard his voice yet, uh, and, and he hasn't had a chance to speak for himself. And not only do I have his voice, I have hours and hours, I think it's 15 hours of these conversations, which are uh, unguarded and, and wide-ranging and cover all kinds of things. Uh, is that something you can use? And, and it seems that the serial producers said, yes, that's something that we could base a season of the show around. So, so far we know that, um, from the first episode, that, that Bo Bergdahl is going to be making this rather peculiar argument. Um, in, in some ways, just in his apparent naivete, he, he does resemble a little bit um, the, the protagonist of the first season. But anyway, he's going to make this argument that he basically went AWOL or dust one, as we learned uh, that it's, uh, it's called under certain circumstances, because he wanted to call attention to some unfairnesses or, or lapses of, of good judgment or good management within the military. We don't know too many details about that yet, but we, we know that's going to be part of it. And, and 
you know, so we wonder, you, you kind of wonder, well, what's what's the linchpin of this whole series or what's the fulcrum uh, on which it tips? Is it going to be, as you said, as something as stark as, well, does he have a legitimate case to make here? Is there really kind of a, a part of the story that's never been told and, and which he's you know been treated unfairly for? Or are we going to pull back a little bit further and have this be a longer lens through which we look at the U.S. military and some of our foreign entanglements? Yeah, you, you used the phrase pull back, and I, I think that's apt. Uh, given what we heard in the first episode of season two, uh, Sarah Koenig compared the, her investigation into the Bergdahl situation to a children's book called Zoom, which begins with an extreme close-up of a rooster's comb, and you pull back, and the rooster is a toy in a toy farmhouse being played with by a child who turns out to be in a magazine advertisement, which turns out to be read by a character here. And you pull back further and further with each stage, and the perspective shifts each time. Uh, and... I thought that was a really interesting and sort of intriguing way to frame the structure of the series, to say we're going to start with the single incident and then we're going to consistently pull further and further back and set it in a wider and wider context and see how that changes our understanding of the phenomenon. So it, this also raises question about you know what the brand name, what the brand of serial is going to be. I mean, here's this thing that absolutely rewrote the possibilities for podcasting. Uh, I mean, we don't have to explain that to people. I assume they they already know uh, what an incredible departure in terms of mass audience the original serial was. But then the question is, well, what's the what does the brand mean here? And for some people, I, I think there was an involvement that that existed, and I hope I'm not being unfair, almost at, almost at the level of soap opera. I mean, there kind of was, first of all, this sort of high school soap opera unfolding of who did what to whom and who liked whom and who belonged to what group and who's, who got high with whom. And then there was this kind of um, uh, overlay on that, which was the relationship unfolding uh, among the reporters and the people that they were covering. Um, there, so much of that seemed to involve people at a very, very deeply personal level. And I'm wondering whether that audience sticks around for something that's about the military and maybe also about foreign policy. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and it's a very ambitious thing that they're trying to do. I, I, they had, although they had made statements very clearly about what they were doing, a different story with every season. I had filed it mentally under true crime, mm -hmm. under the investigations of of uh, real life criminal cases, and and I had thought that that hook of well, did he do it or didn't he? Uh, was something that they would reuse over and over because, of course, there are an infinite number of this kind of case that you could investigate and that would take you into different milieu and so on. Uh, it turns out that what they're actually doing is that their remit is actually much broader than that. that, that what they're interested in doing is using the, the techniques of contemporary audio narrative production to tell a single long story over the course of eight hours. And, and it seems like that's really all that serial means, that uh, while a program like This American Life pioneered a kind of radio short storytelling, Serial is going to be taking that approach and applying it to something that's more the scope of a novel. Uh, if This American Life is a collection of short stories, then each season of Serial is a different novel. Uh, and I, I think that's a really interesting form and an interesting way to go, but the question of whether you bring your audience with you from one story to another is still very much up in the air. Right. There's this uh, Swiss uh, marketing uh, and communications theorist, Clotaire Rapai, who talks about the code of something. You know, that, that there's, what, there's what something says it is, and then there's the code, which is sort of how people read it and understand it. And so, I mean, a Hummer is a big 
big heavy car, you know. But its code has got all kinds of other military overlays and uh, psychological over- overlays and reasons why people might want to own it that have nothing to do with what the makers of Hummer even say about it. So similarly with serial, I mean, there's there's what they say that they're doing, which is exactly what you just said, and then there's probably also how they're read and interpreted. One thing that I think that they might be able to do as a consistent arch from season one to season two. Season one was also very much about geeking out on stuff. So, you know, there were podcasts about the podcast and podcasts about the podcast about the podcast and and people just sifting through all kinds of forensic evidence and things that were not actually entertained uh, on the narrative itself. And, And people like doing that and the Internet lends itself very much to that. And this seems to be if they could get the anything, anything comparable to the feverish engagement of the first season, you know, they're already providing maps and stuff like that on their own website. This is the kind of thing you really could geek out about. That's right. One of the challenges that they're facing, though, is that they've stepped into a story that's extremely politically charged and that's charged along the ordinary sort of political fault lines of American discussion, where there are people associated with military groups for whom Bo Bergdahl is just straightforwardly a traitor and a war criminal. Uh, People who say that, you know, uh, his platoon mates lost their lives in the search for him just because he did this foolish, willful thing. Uh, and and as soon as you address something that stirs up that kind of controversy, uh, it's no longer a, a kind of virgin field of snow for investigation in, in the way that the Heyman Lee murder case sort of was for the Internet. Um, let's actually hear a little bit of a clip here. I think you can get also kind of a sense of, I think these are actually two clips merged together, but you can get a little sense of how Bo Bergdahl sounds. So I had this fantastic idea that I was going to prove to the world that, you know, I was the real thing. You know, I could be I could be what it is that every, you know, all those guys out there who go to the movies and watch those movies, they all want to be that. But I wanted to prove that I was that. The first plan was go from point A to point B, and that was it. However, 20 minutes out, I'm going, good grief, I'm in over my head. This is, when I get back to the FOB, they're going to hit me with everything they can. I knew that was going to happen, but suddenly, you know, it really starts to sink in that I really did something bad. Well, not bad, but I did, I really did something serious. We're talking to Gabriel Roth, a senior editor from from Slate. This also um, is very much about the future of podcasts. Uh, you know, it's not going to dictate the future of podcasts, but the success or failure of this raises some interesting questions about what what can podcasts do and what can't they do. Slate is really, really good at a certain kind of podcast. I'm completely addicted to the format. It's a very familial kind of format where you sit down every week with, you know, with Plots and and uh, and Emily and, and Dickerson, and, you know, they're like your family, and you listen to them argue about stuff, and I, I listen to all those podcasts, and they're really great. Uh, and there are other kinds of narration, fictional narration. The message is something that uh, they're trying to break now. It has a little bit of the sound of serial, but it's a fictional story. But but this this is an interesting question. This is the only really mass market, huge phenomenon, Mark Maron notwithstanding, uh, to come out of the podcasting world. And, and I assume that world is watching this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, serial changed the game, I think, for everybody who's involved in audio production. And um, it comes back to this question, were people there for a long-form audio narrative or were they there for this one particularly compelling case? Uh, And the jury is still out on that. We're 
Once again, we're producing the Serial Spoiler Special podcast in which every week we're talking about each episode of Serial. It remains to be seen if uh, the, the amount of energy and attention going on around uh, around season two of Serial matches the energy and attention that, that made season one something where people wanted not just the podcast itself, but then peripheral podcasts discussing the original podcast. The other thing that, that this will have, and I think there may even be a little story breaking right now, or maybe even a big story breaking about Bergdahl right now, but um, it, it does seem as though um, this will have the quality of making news and paralleling news, right? I mean, the Bo Bergdahl's case is far from being a settled matter. Uh, in, in fact, the Saeed case was really kind of different in, in, in that way than it seemed to have been settled. But this will have the advantage of probably unfolding in real time against breaking news in the Bergdahl case. I think that's absolutely right, and I'm sure it will be good for Serial that there there will be uh, developments in the outside world that they will respond to, just as they did in the end in, seri- in season one, as their investigation um, created new events happening. Um, it, it's worth mentioning that the the case against Bo Bergdahl is is in a military tribunal rather than in a civilian court, which I, I think is more. Uh, insulated from the media and from sort of pr- uh, public pressure. It becomes less of an issue, the fact that there will be a lot of attention focused on this case, which frankly w- would be true with or without Serial. Um, but yeah, Serial has, I think, deliberately chosen both with the content and with the timing of the release uh, to, to cover something that's going to be unfolding as they're going, and that presumably is part of the excitement for them. Well, Gabriel Roth, it's been great to talk to you. I talked to you some more, but it's Monday. That means I get a new, I get a new installment of the Just with Mike Pesca. And hang up and listen. It'll be up tonight. So I, I really got to go. I got to get ready for all my sleep podcasts. Uh, all right. Th- well, enjoy. <laughs> yeah, Thank you for, for having me. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan for putting it all together as well. We will be back tomorrow. This is going to be an unusual show for us. We're going to have uh, an author who wrote a book about Bill Murray. But you're going to hear a lot of we've been collecting voices to talk about Bill Murray. He occupies a, an unusual place in the sort of actor firmament of our world. Serial's back with season two, and I know there's a lot of questions, but the one question that I hope they answer this season is, does Bo Bergdahl think Adnan did it or not?